So now, why don't you grab your Bible? Uh, we're turning to John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep that one. Uh, we're turning to John, chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Now, in the black Bibles, the black paperback ones, that's page uh, 772. In the gold Bibles, that's page 526. Um, It should also appear on the screen behind me. And I would ask that you would follow along with me as I read. This is Jesus speaking. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also." If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray again. Our Father, we so much one that in this time that it wouldn't be me speaking me giving my ideas or my opinions that in this time it would be you speaking from your word from this perfect book 
authored by the Spirit, through the apostles, living even today, that you would come and speak, that these words would be your words, that they would go to our hearts, and that they would produce joy and life and fruit in us. And so please come and work. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's been two weeks since we were in the Gospel of John, so I just want to get everybody kind of back on the same page. Remember, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples. It's his last meal. In just hours, he's going to be arrested and condemned and crucified, and he knows it. He knows he's going away, and so he's preparing his disciples for what it's going to be like to continue being his disciples, continue following him when he's no longer physically present with them, when he goes away. And he said to them, now don't think just because I'm leaving that you're going to be alone. You're not going to be alone. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to be with you. And we saw two weeks ago kind of what that life in the Spirit looks like. We saw that Jesus said to his followers that if you trust in me, if you belong to me, then my life is going to come into your life, that that you're going to be connected to me, and you're going to be changed. You guys remember the picture he used? It was a picture of a vine and branches, right? Jesus said, I am the vine. I'm this vine. I'm, I'm just pulsing with life, flowing with life. And if you trust in me, if you get connected to me, you're a branch. If you get connected to me, then my life will flow into your life, through your life, and, and you're going to bear fruit. You're going to change. You're going to begin to look more like me. You're going to have an impact on the people around you. It was such a beautiful and encouraging picture, but Jesus wants us to know that there's going to be a consequence for bearing fruit. And the consequence has to do with the fact that not everybody is going to like the fruit we bear. Now, when we first moved to Ireland, Kim and I, and Joshua, who was then 10 months old, we we lived in this townhouse that had a guava tree in front of it. And I thought this was an incredible novelty. I'd never had a fruit tree before. I thought it was amazing. I could go into my yard, pick something off a tree, bring it in, slice it up, and make a smoothie. I, it was my favorite thing that had you know, ever happened, at least until I tasted mangoes. And, and so I was so excited, but I quickly discovered that not everyone loved the guava tree because Kim hated the smell of guavas. She, she still hates the smell of guavas. And so I realized, if I want to make a smoothie, I'm going to have to wait till she's out of the house, I'm going to have to do it quick and then make sure that I, I got to remove all the evidence. I've got to wash the cutting board. I've got to wash the blender. I've got to take the peels in the garbage, take the garbage to the dumpster. I've got to aerosol the air so that there's, there's no trace of guava because I know that she just hates this smell. It was, it was so much work that I eventually just said, I'm just not going to have guava smoothies. I'll just, I'll just look at the guavas. I'll let the chickens have the guavas. That, that, I can just let that one go by. Not everyone is going to like the fruit that your life produces when you're in the vine. As we see ourselves changing, as we see new love and new joy and new self-control and new courage, as we see God at work in our lives, we're going to be so excited by that. But we're also going to encounter opposition. And that's what Jesus wants to get us ready for. So we're going to look at at four facets of this opposition from this passage. We're, We're going to spend the most of the time on the last one, but the first three we're going to look at just to get us ready for that one. So we're going to see the reality of opposition, the reason for opposition, the danger of opposition, and our help in opposition. So first, the reality of opposition. Jesus says repeatedly in this passage that 
experiencing opposition, experiencing pushback, it's not a possibility for his followers, it's a certainty. Now, it might sound kind of like, an un, like, a, like a possibility when you look at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But verse 19 removes all doubt. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It hates you. He says in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Opposition will come. When someone trusts in Jesus, many wonderful things happen in their life. Their sins are forgiven. God becomes their father. They receive the Holy Spirit. But one thing that doesn't happen is life doesn't get easy. Remember that part of trusting in Jesus is repenting. It's turning from our old life and now going his way. And we discover something when we turn. So some of you are cyclists. I am not a cyclist. But if if you've ridden a bike, you can probably imagine what I'm going to describe to you. Just imagine you've gone out for a bike ride. You've been heading away from home. You're starting to get a little tired and you think it's about time for me to turn back and when you turn that bike around, you realize something. You realize the whole way out, you've had a tailwind. It's just been pushing you, making it easy. And you turn around and you realize it's gonna, getting home is going to be a lot harder than getting out. It's just coming right in your face. And that's what it's like to become a Christian. You realize that things have been a little easier for you because you've been going with the drift of culture. You've been going the same way everybody else is going. And as soon as you turn you realize that some things aren't going to be as easy as they were. You're going to get resistance at work. Resistance from your friends, maybe resistance from your family. People you are really close to, they don't understand you anymore. They don't like the change. When Jesus says that the world will hate you, he doesn't mean that suddenly everyone who's not a Christian is going to be your enemy, like your neighbors are just going to start throwing rocks at you when you're walking to your car. I hope that all of us have warm, close friendships with people who don't, don't trust in Jesus. But what he means is, for in those relationships with the people in your life who don't love who you love, there's going to be something in them that doesn't like something in you. Now, why is that? Secondly, the reason for opposition is you remind the world of Jesus. Now, Jesus says this several times. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you... Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. It's it's because of Jesus. He tells us the reason we'll be hated is that he was hated and were with him. Which raises the question, who would hate Jesus? Right? He he, he came into the world healing the sick, raising the dead, embracing the people that society cast out, talking about God's love. Who, who wouldn't love a guy like that? I mean, everybody loves Jesus, right? That, that's why they hung him on a cross. To understand what's going on here, we need to understand what Jesus means by the world. So according to scripture, there are two ways to live which flow out of two heart allegiances. If your heart is most loyal to God, if you believe what he says, if you live the way he calls you to live, then you belong to what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. God's your king. 
your heart is his. But there's another way to live which flows out of another heart allegiance. If, if, your, life, if your heart is most loyal to you, where you want to do what you want to do, you want to you live how you want to live, you want to do what you say is right, you trust yourself, and God is not your king. Now, you might, you might think God is fine, you might be interested in him, but you have not submitted yourself to his reign. You don't belong to his kingdom, and you belong to what Jesus here calls the world. Everyone falls into one of these camps. Either, either God is your king, or you're a rebel against him. And we all start as rebels. We all start there, right? Every parent knows you don't have to teach a child to be hateful. You don't have to teach a child to push when they don't get what they want. You don't have to teach a kid to hurt with their words. You don't have to teach them to wait till your back is turned and do the exact thing you just told them not to. We're rebels from birth. We all start that way. We all start in the world. And look at what Jesus says in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. He's saying we all start there, but then some people encounter Jesus. They hear his voice calling them, and they come out of the world to belong to him. Now, to people who are still of the world, it feels like freedom because they don't have, they don't have a God telling them what to do, telling them how to think or how to live. But it's not freedom because the world has a ruler too. Did you see that when we were reading through it? Chapter 16, verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He's not talking about God. He's talking about Satan. People who belong to the world, even if they're not conscious of it, they're not free. They're rebels doing the will of the first rebel. They're slaves to his purposes, slaves to the sin of their hearts. That's why they can't stop gossiping. It's why they get angry and they lose control. It's why they work themselves into the ground and they can't stop. To be in the world is to be a slave, constantly doing what God forbids and accruing to yourself more and more of his judgment. Now, am I painting too dark of a picture? Listen, every human was made to love and live for God, and we haven't. We're all guilty. And on some level, we know it. We know deep down that there's a right and wrong in the world that we didn't make up. And if there's a law, if there's a transcendent law, then there's a transcendent lawgiver. And if there's a lawgiver, then there must be some judgment. There must be some way for him to right every wrong and to address every lawbreaker. And we are all lawbreakers. All of us are. And it's, we're guilty, and it's incredibly difficult to face that fact. So we've developed ways of assuring ourselves that it's not so bad. We tell ourselves, well, nobody's perfect. We say, well, I did that thing. I, I did that thing. But overall, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm definitely better than those people, right? Or, or maybe we deny that there's even such a thing as good. We tell ourselves, we tell ourselves, we just need to be true to ourselves. I just need to live my truth. I need to do what's, what's right for me. We tell ourselves, I'm fine. We tell each other, you're fine. But then Jesus comes into the world and he doesn't play the game. He doesn't say, you're fine. He comes into the world and he says, repent. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't come to God unless you come through me. He shatters this idea that we're fine. He exposes our guilt. And how does the world react? They hate him. Look at verse 22 of chapter 15. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. When he says, if I hadn't come, they wouldn't be guilty, he didn't mean everyone was perfect until he came. He didn't make them guilty. He made them see it. He made them realize their guilt, and that's what they didn't like about him. He came in like a light, showing the darkness of our hearts, and instead of addressing our hearts, we just put out the light. We just said, I don't want to see that anymore. Let's get rid of him. Jesus came into the world to be the cure for a disease that no one wants to admit that they have. He came to show us our guilt so we would see our need for forgiveness. So that he could go to the cross and die to provide that forgiveness for anyone who would trust in him. But we can't accept the cure he provides until we accept the diagnosis. And many people didn't. And many people still don't. And that's why, Christian, you'll be opposed. If you've been brought into the kingdom, you're going to remind people of the king. If you've been grafted into the vine, your fruit is going to remind them of him. Your words, your life, they'll be like a light shining on the people around you. It'll remind them of what they should be, and they aren't. It'll make them uncomfortable. And the more like him you become, the more opposed you'll be. And Jesus tells us the danger that presents, which is thirdly, the danger of opposition is that it can keep you from faithfulness. Now look at chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus doesn't want this opposition to catch them off guard, to take them by surprise. He doesn't want them to think, oh, something bad's happening. I I must be doing it wrong. He wants them to know what's coming. Look at verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. You're going to be expelled from community. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So these disciples, they're going to be put out of community. Some of them, most of them actually, are going to be killed as martyrs for trusting in Jesus. And Jesus wants them to know it's coming so they don't fall away. The danger of opposition is that it can keep us from faithfulness. We might try to speak about Jesus to our family. And we think they're going to be just as excited about him as we are. And they're just offended that we even brought it up. And we we can think, well, okay, I guess I won't do that again. Or we take an ethical stand at work and we say, this, I'm a Christian and I'm not going to do this thing. And then we, we get taken off the client and we think, okay, well, I guess, I guess I won't do that again. And over time, we just shed all the parts of our walk with Jesus that people don't like, that, that raise uncomfortable questions. It's not that we turn our back on him, we throw our Bible in the rubbish bin, we just never go to church again. We just, we just only obey him to the degree that it doesn't bother anybody that it doesn't make them uncomfortable. We cease to be distinctive, which is a tragedy, because it's our distinctiveness that God uses to point people to Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't want that to happen, so he tells us up front, you're going to be opposed. It's part of the deal, but so that you don't fall away, so that you don't give up, I'm going to give you a helper. And that, finally, is our help in opposition. The Spirit will bring truth to us and through us. Now, one of the most amazing things Jesus says anywhere about the Spirit, he says here in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 16, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, you're sad because I keep telling you that I'm leaving, but this is going to be better for you. This is to your advantage that I go away. So if you, do you think it's wonderful that I've been with you now, that you've been with me for three years? You've had God in the flesh right here. He said, it's going to be having the Spirit in you is going to be more wonderful than having me beside you. If, you. if you've trusted in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, the way that you know God, the way you experience God, that's better than if you could, have, if you could travel 2,000 years ago in time and sit around the campfire with Jesus. It's better to have the Spirit than to have Jesus physically with you. Do you believe that? And part of the reason that's true is what the Spirit does for us in helping us when we're opposed. So the first thing he does is that he brings truth to us. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says that the Spirit will come to Jesus' disciples and he will tell them about Jesus. Tell them what Jesus is like. Now, why why do we need that? Because when opposition comes, the question we're all going to ask is, is this worth it? Is it worth speaking about Jesus if it comes between me and my family? Is it worth obeying his commandments about money and sex if it makes me a joke to the people around me? Is it worth taking a stand if it costs me promotion? Is it worth it? But the better question is, is he worth it? And that's why the Spirit comes to remind our hearts of the worth of Jesus. Now, Jesus says in verse 14, he will glorify me. And J.I. Packer, who's, he's an English theologian, he's a writer, there was a time when he was, he was walking to a church, it was like a winter evening, he was walking to a church building to, to preach, and he came around the corner, and he saw the building ahead of him just completely lit up by a floodlight. And he thought, that That's the perfect illustration for my sermon on the Holy Spirit, that that what that floodlight is doing for the church building, that's what the Holy Spirit does for Jesus. The floodlight draws no attention to itself, right? It's like buried in the ground. It only, it's there to show you the building, to show off its beauty, to make it visible to you, even at night, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit does for Christians about Jesus. He he reveals Jesus to us. He, he shows us his glory. He shows us his goodness. When we're, when we're discouraged, when we're worn out, when we're tempted to just throw in the towel, the Spirit bears witness about Jesus. He glorifies him to us. He reminds us of his goodness. He reminds us of his compassion and of his love and of his wisdom and of his power. He reminds us that he came from heaven to die for us. He reminds us that he lives forever in heaven to care for us. He reminds us that following Jesus is worth it 
Because Jesus is worth it. And how does he do that? For us, living today, he does it primarily through scripture. So look at chapter 15, verse 27. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying to these disciples, when the Spirit comes, he's going to tell you about Jesus, and then you're going to tell other people about Jesus. You're going to go and preach about him, and you've been with me from the beginning. You know all these parts of my life. You're going to go, and you're going to write about it. You're going to write the truth about Jesus. Look at chapter 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says, I have more things to say to you than I've said so far, and the things that I have to say you can't bear now. You're too sad that I'm going away. You're too confused about what's going on. But when the Spirit comes, he's going to lead you into all the truth. He's going to tell you everything you need to know about me. And when that happened, when, when Jesus kept that promise, when he sent the Holy Spirit, the apostles wrote it down for us. So John, remember, John is in this room. John wrote it down in this gospel so that we could hold it in our hands and, and know what he knows. He wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. Peter was there. Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter. Matthew was there, and he wrote the gospel of Matthew. The New Testament is the work of the Spirit working through the apostles to bring us all the truth about Jesus so that our hearts can be encouraged. When we read it, the Spirit brings it to life. We remember who Jesus is. We remember that he's the bread of life that satisfies our souls. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, right? He's the vine that we live in. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see his glory with our hearts. We remember his worth and we endure instead of falling away. But the Spirit's work doesn't stop there. He doesn't just help us by bringing the truth to us, reminding us that Jesus is worth living for. He brings the truth through us to others. Look at verse 8. Of chapter 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit doesn't just come and speak to us. The Spirit comes to speak to the world. To convict the world. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's understand what that means first and then how that works. So what does it mean? What does it mean to convict someone? Well, when you convict someone, you prove that they're guilty, right? So, so you lay out all the evidence so the truth of their guilt is undisputed, right? The Spirit has come to help people who are currently part of the world see their guilt, to lay it out before them so they can't escape that assessment, And he doesn't do it to shame them, but so they'll see their need, they'll repent, and they'll turn and trust in Jesus. He's come to convict them, he says in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. If they believed in him, their sin wouldn't be a problem because it would be forgiven through faith in him. But they don't believe in him. So the Spirit works to show them their sin and show them that they need Jesus. And he convicts them, verse 10, concerning righteousness, Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
He shows them that their righteousness, the things in their life that they point to that make them feel like, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm a good person, that those things, they're, they're not going to cut it with God. All right? I've told this story before, but Nathan Cole was a farmer in the American colonies in the 1740s, and he went to hear the famous evangelist George Whitfield speak in Middletown, Connecticut. And this is what he wrote about his experience. He wrote, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Before that, he thought he was righteous. He thought he was doing just fine, that, that God would, would look at him on the day of judgment and say, good enough. But hearing the gospel made him realize, my righteousness will not save me. I'm not good before God. I don't have what I need. If I'm going to be righteous, my righteousness needs to come from outside of me. I need to be counted righteous with the righteousness of Christ. I need him to make me righteous. The Spirit convicts us of our righteousness, so we come to Jesus for his. And he convicts the world, verse 10, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So God's judgment of the world has already begun, starting with Satan. The day is drawing near when every person will stand before God and, and you'll either go into eternal life, into the fullness of his presence forever, or into eternal death, into his complete absence forever. And the only way to be safe from judgment is to be forgiven and counted righteous through faith in Christ. And the Spirit has come to drive these truths into our hearts so we will fly to Jesus, so we will look to him, so that we will find our life in him. So how does the Spirit do that? He does it through us. That's how he convicts the world. He does it through his people, speaking about Jesus. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2? Do you remember the day of Pentecost, right? When, when Jesus kept the promise to send the Holy Spirit, his people were gathered, remember, in, in this upper room, and the Spirit came, and Peter went out, and before this entire crowd, he preached about Jesus. Do you, do you remember what happened? The crowd said, it says that Luke tells us they were cut to the heart, and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And he told them, trust in Jesus, and 3,000 people were baptized. What happened? The Spirit came through him. He brought the truth through Peter, and he convicted the world of sin, and they said, we need Jesus, and they came to him, 3,000 at one time. That's how the Spirit convicts the world. He does it through you speaking openly to your family about why you've decided to follow Jesus. He does it through coffee with a friend where you explore what they believe and help them to see how much better Jesus is. He does it in Sunday school as you point preschoolers week after week to the only hope for rebels. Are you excited for that? It's scary, right? That's why he sent the Spirit. Within, just within hours of him talking to his disciples about this, all of them failed him, right? All of them left him alone. Peter denied that he even knew him. All of them failed. He knew it would happen, and yet he says with such confidence, you will bear witness about me. How can, how can he be so confident? He was confident because he knew the Spirit would do it. If this responsibility to speak frightens you, pray 
that the Spirit would glorify Jesus in your heart so that you would just remember how worthy he is, how worthy he is of being loved and trusted and spoken about, and ask that he would use you to convict the people you love so they can turn and trust in him too. Let's pray. Our Father, even as we, even as we consider this again, this can feel overwhelming to us that the way you want to bring the world to yourself is through us. And we're, we're even tempted to question your wisdom in making this the way, but that only shows how little we believe in the power of your spirit. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done, that you sent your son to hang on a cross so that we could be forgiven and made yours, that he took our sin so we could have his righteousness. And we want the people we love to know it. We want them to know you, and we want you to use us. And so we can't do it on our own, but we ask that you would send the Spirit, that he would work in our hearts, that we would love and trust in you, and that you would use us in the world, use us as individuals, and use us as a church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.